0: And so when we get to chapter 2, what we're seeing is that we're seeing Jesus' character and nature revealed more and more and more. But we see it revealed in a unique way, and it starts at a party, at a wedding. In John chapter 2, sentences 1-3, to we read this at the beginning of this story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So is that a wedding and it's the third day of the week, which is a Tuesday. And our ancient Near Eastern weddings are not like ours. We tend to knock it out in half a day or a day, but for them it was like a family jamboree. It would just go on for it could be a couple of days, it could be as long as a week, because people were traveling to get there. The idea was you don't don't walk several days to get to something that's over in an afternoon and then you've got to (laughs) trek back again. Everyone would come and stay and it would be a celebration that would kind of expand over the week. And so because of that, uh, things like running out of wine could happen because you've got to provide enough food and wine, whatever, for a celebration over a week. And so here, the worst has happened. They've run out of wine. Now again, this might not seem like a big deal to us, because in a Western culture, if you if you ran out of wine, if the bar tab runs out, look, it's mildly embarrassing, but it's not the worst thing that can happen. But in a shame on a culture, that is about the worst thing that could happen. In fact we know that even in this culture, you could be sued for running out of wine at a wedding. They, they took their partying seriously. Like they just imagine that, you're like, that's it. you're done. I'm gonna litigate because you knew you ran out of wine. But um, but in a shame on a culture that is the case. You might have visited even a, a non Western culture where you visited an extremely poor family, and they provide a meal for you, and you almost feel bad because you have you know more material wealth, and yet to refuse that meal would bring so much shame on it. It'd be worse than hunger for it. And that's because other cultures see things differently. And so in this culture, the shame on a culture, if you're entertaining, it is your honour to put on a lavish banquet for a wedding. It was a big deal. And so they've run out. And so Jesus' mother comes to him because she believes that he can do something about this. Now remember, at this point, because this is the first miracle, she has an inkling that Jesus is unique, but hasn't seen him do anything miraculous. So when when Jesus' mother comes to him at this point, she's not expecting what happens next. In fact, the reason she's probably coming to him is that we know that his disciples are with him. So he's someone who's got a fair amount of influence. And presumably, the reason she's going to Jesus is she's like, look, you seem like a guy who can get things done. You've got this band of weird 12 guys who follow you around. Obviously, you can make people do things. We're out of wine. Can you do something about it? But have a look at his response. In John 2, 4-5, this is kind of terse. And he said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And Jesus' response sounds harsh here, isn't it? And I was hoping in kind of preparing for this that in looking in the Greek and whatever you just see, it's kind of a bit lost in translation. And, you know, that was just a, a, a way of honoring your mom was to call her a woman. Um, or, or, you know, like you know, like a man sort of title. But it's not. It is actually just quite short. That's not how an ancient Near Eastern man would have spoken to his mother. And so there's something going on here. So I just wanted to, we're going to come back to that. So just leave that as kind of like a post-it note in your mind. He's a little bit short here and says something strange when he says, My hour has not yet come. But going on from that, his his mother uh, tells the servants who are there, Jesus is going to tell you what to do. Whatever he says, do it. And then this happens. In in Senesis 6 to 11, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the servant, Jesus tells these servants to go and fill these purification jars. The Jewish people had all these kinds of rites that were meant to demonstrate to them over and over again that God is holy and we are sinful and that that needs to be dealt with. So they had all these rituals and rites that were a constant reminder that there's a gap between us and God. You can't just waltz into the presence of God. He's a holy God and there are things that we need to do in order to be pure. We need purification. So they had these jars lying around and Jesus says, go and fill them all up. And they bring them back. And he, he instructs them to take it to the master of the feast. So this is the, the master of ceremonies, the one who presumably, kind of like the head chef, is ensuring that only quality food and drink is going out. He takes a sip of it, and it blows his mind. And he says to them, you know, something along the lines of, look, wait, everyone waits till everyone's proper maggot before they bring out the Aldi wine, right? But you've saved the Grange to last. And he's, he's like, he, he can't believe it. I mean, that's that's a wise way to do things, right? If you are if you're smart and you've got expensive wine and cheap wine, let everybody drink the expensive wine first, and then they just forget that that's not what you're drinking the whole time. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus do it? Why has he chosen a couple of things? Why has he chosen for his first miracle to be to turn water into wine? And why did he turn it into very, very good wine rather than just wine? in the Old Testament, so the, the writings of Scripture that were there before Jesus arrived, it was anticipated that God was going to bring in an age when He was going to deal with sin and with injustice in the world and bring in an age of abundance and life. And He described this down in the future when God would bring His people out of captivity and rescue them and they'd be gathered together and God Himself would dwell with them. And in Isaiah 26, 6-8, we read about this. But look what it says written hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. It says, the, uh, the foot tramples it, uh, the feet of the poor, and the steps of the needy. The pain of the righteous is leveled. No, that's not right. Yeah. What? 25 six-way was what Okay, let me give you the vibe of it. Um, <laughs> the great to It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine well refined and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people the veil that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever and the lord god will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the lord has spoken when he talks about this day in the future when god is going to deal with death and all the suffering that results from that, and sin, and everything, he talks about it as a, of a day of abundant good wine. And so, why does Jesus choose this as his first miracle? Because he's demonstrating that he is the King who's going to bring this day about. The reason he does this for his first miracle is that it's a sign that he is the one who's going to bring abundant life. It's kind of like a a president's first speech after their inauguration. They will lay out what kind of president they're going to be and what it's going to be like to be under their rule. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, you you want to know what it's going to be like to follow me as king? It's going to mean bringing about abundant life. And this theme continues through the book of John. In John 10.10, when he talks about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full." Jesus comes to bring abundant life, and this miracle is meant to demonstrate it. He does the wine thing as a reminder of this promise in Isaiah, and He makes it very good wine to demonstrate that He is not a frugal God, that He's going to bring abundant life, that He's going to be over the top. And His disciples get this. Look at how they respond. In sentence 11, it says this. He says, This the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. They see the sign, they see it's not just a party trick, but it's a sign pointing to a greater reality. They see that Jesus is the promised King from the Old Testament, the one who's gonna bring about this new era of abundant life, and they believe in him. They're like, yes, this is the guy, this is the one that God has been promising for all these years. He's the one who's finally gonna do it. And so they believe in him. But then the question becomes well how? Like it's great that he turned water into wine how is it that Jesus is going to deal with the issues of sin and death and all of this? Well, this maybe brings us back to why he was a little bit short with his mother before. One commentator has put this forward, and I put it out there to my small group this week and didn't get a lot of bites, but we'll see, we'll see how we go. And the thought is this. Jesus has in his mind this final day that he'll bring together when all sin and death is dealt with. And in in the book of Revelation, also written by John, it's described as this massive banquet and feast. That when God brings all his people together from all time, it's going to be a feast, an abundant feast. And so his thought is perhaps Jesus is sitting here, considering that day as he sits at a wedding, thinking of the day when he'll bring all his people together for this big feast. But then also starts to think about what he has to do in order to make that happen he noticed that he says there, my hour has not yet come. And the hour in the book of John always refers to the hour of his death. It comes up again and again in the later chapters when he talks about his hour has come to be glorified, how he's going to die and all of this. And so one commentator thinks that perhaps the reason he's so short is because he's, he's almost started to think about this day that he's going to bring about and his death that's going to have to bring it about. And his, his mum asked him about this one and he almost snapped is thinking about such dark thoughts. And to add some weight to, to whether or not that's really the case, because, look, take it or leave it, it's not that critical to understanding the passage. But look at what happens next in this in the story that John puts together. In John 2, 13-17, we see some another side, I guess, of Jesus here. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Happen here? We've just had these stories of right next to each other in the Gospel of John, and he's put them next to each other on purpose. We have one where Jesus is the life of the party. Everything's going wrong, they turn to Jesus, he brings abundant wine, turns the whole thing around. Then we see him enter the temple, and he drives grown men out of the temple like they're cattle. He makes a whip of cords, and he humiliates them and drives them out. There's this kind of a Jekyll and Hyde Jesus, where he's got this kind of really sweet side and then this really nasty side that he kind of flips between. I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think if he is a good and loving king, then it's consistent what he did at the wedding at Cana and what he does in the temple. So these people who were in the temple were making money out of saying that you can you can buy this stuff to make sacrifices so that you can get near to God. The temple was the place where people would have come near and draw near to God. And so people from other nations would come to the temple and they would make sacrifices or offerings that were a way of worshipping God. And these guys have set up shops in the temple grounds and they're selling money, they're selling items in order to make money off these people who want to meet God and have relationship with Him. Consider it like this. Imagine imagine you work for Doctors Without Borders uh, and you're in charge of a division that was distributing free vaccines in a refugee camp in Afghanistan. And, uh, And you visit the site and you find that local volunteers are forcing the locals to pay money for these free vaccines. These have already been paid for, they've been donated, and you're finding that they're setting up stalls and selling these vaccines. If you were in charge of that division, you'd be well within your rights, wouldn't you? to go in there and flip over tables and kick them out of the camp. In fact, it would be unloving to walk into that camp and be like, oh, I guess you're just trying to make your way in the world. Like, Could you just lower the price a little bit? Or, something? No, you wouldn't. You'd be like, you're gouging your own people. You're gouging the most vulnerable people in the world. You're cutting them off from life to make a profit out of it. And that's what Jesus sees these guys doing here. There are people coming to meet with God where they will find life and they are making money out of it, and Jesus is furious, and he flips over the tables, and he drives them out. So the truth is that Jesus is good, but he is not tame. Love, when it sees an innocent thing threatened, will act, and Jesus acts. The prophecy that they looked at, that, that verse saying, Zeal for your house will consume me, was, was a description of this king that was to come. This king would have a passion for God's name and would see wickedness like this and deal with it. And Jesus does. And because of that, look how they respond. In sentences 18 to 20, it writes, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They're saying to him, what right do you have to come into the temple and kick us out? And Jesus says, because it's my father's house. The temple was the place where people were to meet God, and Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and I'll I'll rebuild it. And of course, they're thinking he's talking about the physical temple that they're in. It was built by Herod, a king who was installed by the Roman rulers. And he built it because he was put in charge of the Jewish people, and he knew that they didn't like him. They weren't particularly happy about the Romans putting an authority over them. And so to kind of to kind of get in with the people, he bought them this fancy new temple. And it took them 46 years to build. That's an incredible effort. It was nothing on the original temple that had been destroyed, but it was a significant structure. And when Jesus says, destroy this temple and i rebuild it in three days, they instinctively think, oh what, you're going to like just magic a temple into being? Like, it, it, that's what you think you're doing? And yet Jesus is saying that He is the temple, meaning that He now is the place where people will meet God. That's nothing new from last week. John 1 says that He was the Word become flesh. This is where you meet God. If you've seen Jesus, it says you've seen the Father. And Jesus says, if you destroy this, I'll rebuild it in three days. talking about His death and resurrection. That Jesus is the one who has authority over life and death. The way that he's going to bring in this new age where death is defeated and where abundant life reigns is by dying in our place for our sin so that we might have life forever with God. See, in these two stories, we see that Jesus is both good and powerful. He is not to be messed with, and yet at the same time, it's good to be around him. I reckon oftentimes we can emphasize either one or the other. And yet this story says we need to hold both. There is a view of Jesus that kind of focuses really on the water turning into wine kind of Jesus. A therapeutic Jesus. That treats Jesus is like, you know what, Jesus would be a great guy to have around at the party. He's the kind of guy you want to have in town. He's really just a good friend. In fact, the reason to believe in Jesus is that he's just one more ingredient that's part of a, a really good life. You have diet, exercise, fulfilling work, and then a bit of Jesus in the mix, and it all kind of works out. He's not, like, he's not the everything, but he's, just, he's a really good friend to have around. But there's another side that emphasizes just the powerful Jesus. That he's a king that cannot be messed with. He's going to judge every person who has ever lived. And you can't mess with him. On that day, you won't be able to argue with him. You won't be able to bribe him or pay him off. It doesn't matter how significant a person you are in your workplace, Jesus will not care. Every knee will bow before him. But some emphasize that so much to the degree that it's almost like he, he's a boss, but he's in charge, and I guess I've just got to follow him. But this passage says that if you want to believe in Jesus, it means believing both, that is both good and powerful, that he's not to be trifled with, and yet he brings abundant life. And so for you, what do you need to repent of? Have you emphasized one over the other, rather than holding both together? I remember I saw at a, um, at a skate park, it's always interesting to read the graffiti that's there, and someone had written on the top of one of the grind boxes, they'd just written, never, never obey. And I thought, well, what if I obey that? Then am I obeying the people who said never to obey? Like, it's, you, you get stuck, right? And it's funny, because like writing something like that, I mean, I don't imagine they put a lot of time and effort into it. Like constructing a worldview around it. They just kind of like, I don't know, just write something, Um, bro. But um, but like the reason I guess it was maybe instinctive to write it is because we have this kind of sense, this anti-authority kind of sentiment that seems kind of normal or natural to us. But here's the problem. Everybody submits to an authority. In the West, it is the case, we breathe the air of individualism and we consider that it is right to doubt everything but we never doubt our authority to doubt everything everybody believes in one authority is the highest even if it's your own intellect or ability to reason everybody has one authority that they submit all other things to for some societies it's tradition and community that is the ultimate unquestionable authority and for us in the west it's my assessment or judgement of things but everybody has something the only question is who's qualified And if this passage is true in John 2, that Jesus is both good and powerful, then He is the only one who is qualified to have authority over our lives. And so if you're someone who treats Jesus as just kind of therapeutic Jesus, who I go to Him for advice, but it's a bit take it or leave it, it might be worth putting Him back in the right perspective, knowing that He has the authority to tell you what to do. And it's not bad, it's actually good. Think about it like this. Say you went because you hate yourself, you went on a really long bushwalk. Unless you're like Jacob or Claire or someone who actually enjoys it, one of the members here who actually go on long bushwalks, um, let's imagine you did that and you were ill-prepared and you found yourself in trouble and you were kilometres away from any kind of help, no way to get access to help, running out of food and water, You you are facing certain death and then out of nowhere, Bear Grylls shows up. Again, if you're not familiar with who that is, he's a yeah how would you describe vegans? there's like a survival expert i guess is how he's positioned himself but basically he just goes to various contexts where it's hard to survive and he survives but let's imagine you're in that context and he shows up and he starts telling you to do stuff what would you do you would you would instinctively follow you might hesitate if he asked you to kind of distill and then drink your own urine which he does in the, in the show but you know what to be honest if it was a matter of survival you would probably trust his authority over your own, right? Even in in a situation like that. You wouldn't sit there going like, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Or can you at least be polite about it? You'd just be like, all right, whatever, wherever you're going, whatever you tell me to do to survive, I'm following you. And that's how it should be with Jesus. If Jesus came through death and brought about indestructible life, it's not so much that you have to follow him as you get to follow him. Why wouldn't you want to follow him? He's the Word become flesh. He came to earth to suffer and die in your place. Who would be better to follow than Him? Who has more authority or wisdom? Who has more power? Who has more love? Jesus has authority, but it's good. It's good to follow Jesus. But the flip side: if you have no problem with the Jesus who has authority, but most of your Christian life is based around dutiful service you need to repent of that too. If you've overemphasized the powerfulness of Jesus to where you feel like, look, of course he's a king. I own my life. That makes logical sense to me. I do what I do because that's the right thing to do. And that too needs to be repented of. Because it may be the case that you're following him, but you're not much fun to be around. And from the outside it doesn't look like you've found abundant life. It sounds like you've found a duty to put your life to it would be, I mean, Valentine's Day passed just last week. And just to clarify, Mel and I don't actually do anything for Valentine's Day. That's a long story, but you can ask us about that at another time. But for those who do do things on Valentine's Day, it would be odd, or look, it'd be odd for me to have come home on Valentine's Day with some flowers for Mel and said, um, Melissa, uh, Melissa Jane Dunn, this is my duty to give you these flowers on this, the 14th of February. Here's my obligation fulfilled. If I if I were to do that, like looking from the outside in, you'd think a couple of things. One, you would think, have you had a lobotomy or something? Like for, for a start. But the other thing is you think, wow, there's not there's not a lot of like warmth to that relationship. And the other thing you might start to think is you're like, I I wonder if they actually even really like each other. And I wonder how long they're gonna last in that kind of state. If that's the way that you relate to God. Those are the kind of questions you'd be asking as well, isn't it? The way that you relate to God is, God, you're a powerful king. I understand that you died for my sins. My life belongs to you now, and so this is my duty and obligation to do what you say. I think, one, like, do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe what you see in Scripture here in John 2? He brings abundant life. But also, how long is that relationship going to last? just grit your teeth and bear it. it, might make it some of the distance. But I imagine over the long haul, you're not going to get there. Unless you believe that Jesus is both powerful and good, I don't think you're going to follow him for the 30, 40, 50, 60 years that you might have until he takes you home. So it is the case that Jesus is a good and powerful king, and we can't neglect one to the advantage of the other. We hold both from John 2. And so I think the last implication is this. If Jesus is a good and powerful king, then praise should be a distinct feature of the Christian life. Praise should be a distinct feature of the Christian life. Here's just one last illustration to explain this kind of dynamic of of, of the place of praise in the Christian life. When we were having a dinner at my parents' house for my grandma's birthday, I think it was, while she was still with us, we um, were sitting around the table and my nephew Lachlan was sitting next to my grandma and during the dinner, he just kind of looked at her. And he looked back at everyone. And then he looked at her again. And then he just announced to the table, "Why is she so wrinkly?" And because because Grandma didn't have like a, an enormous sense of humour about itself, none of us felt comfortable to laugh. So everybody just imploded with laughter. They just everyone looked down and just perished. And no one could do anything. And it was just a, a deep silence that came over the table. And, and so like you've probably you've been in some kind of similar situation at some point in your life before as well, where it felt weird to not be able to just burst out with laughter. He's like that is an objectively funny thing to say. Like that is that's hilarious that a kid would just make that observation, especially because there's no malice in it. Like he's just literally thinking like, well they're all smooth and that one's not. So like, what's what happened you? Were in the bath for too long or like? And so you're like, why, why is that so frustrating to try and have to keep quiet in that moment? And it's because God has made us flesh and spirit and they're united. And so what happens to the body affects the spirit and vice versa. If you get sick or you get an injury, that can often make you feel melancholic. It, it affects you that way. But similarly, if your spirits are raised, your body wants to express that. And so in a situation where you've noticed something that is genuinely funny, the natural response is to burst out in laughter. And if it's true that if we have seen rightly who Jesus is, that He's a good and powerful King, then a normal, natural, logical response would be praise, wouldn't it? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. That's why it's so frustrating not to, right? It's its appointed consummation. It is, not to, it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, to praise him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Praise should be part of the Christian life. And that means praise in, in song and praise in our prayer life and in our regular life. We should, it should be the natural thing to extol how good God is. And oftentimes, like in, in churches like ours, where we are Bible-believing churches, it can sometimes look like we believe that Jesus turned water into medicine rather than wine. Like his mum came up and said, we've got no wine. He's like, woman, people don't need, have you seen the dental hygiene around here? They need fluoride in the water. Like, forget the wine for now. But he didn't. When he announced his kingship and his messiahship coming through, what did he do? He made good wine, abundant wine. Part of that one of the ways that we have to do that is as we sing to give voice to how good God is to complete the joy that we have and when we understand how good and great he is but whether it's in singing here as we gather as a church or during the week it should be the natural and logical consequence of the Christian life that if Jesus is who he says he is in the gospel the natural issuing result should be praise and so I'm going to pray that over this week that would be true let's pray God, we praise You that You are a good and glorious Savior. We praise You that You sent Christ to die in our place for our sin. That when we had nothing in our hand that we could bring to atone for our sin, that we had no way back to You, that You made a way through Jesus Christ. That in Him, You became the just and the justifier of sinners. That You sent Him to earth turn water into wine and to clear temples to demonstrate that He's a good and powerful King, and one worthy of having authority over our lives, that we might live for Him completely, that we might surrender the entirety of our lives to Him joyfully, not out of duty, because there is no one more worthy. And Father, we pray as well that we would live lives of praise, that it would be our joy to share how good You are with as many people as we can, and to encourage one another in this all the more as we see the day drawing near. Father, we pray that we would do this not out of obligation, but that your Spirit would give us eyes to see the greatness of Jesus and that the natural result would be to praise him with all our heart. Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. Amen.